Today, on this Good Friday, we're going to do what John the Baptist encouraged his uh, early followers to do so. We're going to behold Jesus. We're going to watch the Lamb. We're, We're going to look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, and see what that means for us today. See, it's kind of a a weird thing to call someone a lamb, like John has. I mean, we might use it, uh, I was trying to think about this, we might use it in a kind of, almost a condescending way, you know, around, I don't know, the dinner table, be a lamb and pass me the the salt. But it's it's quite a, I don't know, condescending, I I think, is the word I have for it. And and remember at this point that, Jesus was, he was a tradie. He was, you know, this hardened, hard-working, probably muscular, built kind of guy. Thank God, be a lamb. Like, like, I don't think that's what was going on here when John declared, here is the lamb of God. So what was going on? Well, I think when, when John proclaimed Jesus to be that, I think there's a, there was at least three stories or, or three themes, three ideas behind that. And the first comes from early in Israel's history, uh, and it's found in the book of Genesis in chapter 22. There we read about Abraham, who was the father of Israel. And God had promised to Abraham that he would have heirs that, that were as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were now well advanced in, in age. It wasn't even just that, you know, they were, you know, early 40s. They were more like, you know, 90s, 100. And they were still childless. But then, this child of promise, Isaac, he's finally born. And to say that Isaac was then dear to their hearts is, is probably an understatement. And then we read that God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, the son that you've waited all your life for, the son that you never thought you'd ever have, this son who means so much to you, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. It's like God was deliberately reminding Abraham of just how much He loved Isaac, how special and unique that he was to him and to Sarah, before then instructing him to offer him up as a sacrifice. And the incredible thing is that Abraham obeys. Early the next morning, Abraham gets his his donkey and he loads it up with all that's needed. He puts the, the firewood on it. He gets Isaac and a couple of servants and they head off. And as he nears the place for the offering, he leaves the servants behind and continues on just with Isaac. And at that point, Isaac voices the question that he's probably been wondering for a while. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. He said, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. And they come to the mountain and there Abraham built an altar. He placed the firewood on it. And then he bound Isaac and laid his son on top of the altar. 
And as he reached out, knife in hand, ready to sacrifice his son, God called out to him again and told him to stop. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide and to this day it is said that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This you know, as I understand it, this is the first lamb of God. It's provided by God as a substitute for Isaac, a life for a life, a lamb in the place of the beloved son, its death for his life. I'll keep this story in mind as we then consider a second story from Israel's history. See, Isaac had a son, Jacob, who then had many sons, including Joseph, about whom a musical was later made. And, and during their time, Israel went into a time of famine. And the only place where food could be found was in Egypt. And so the family of Jacob moved to Egypt, where Joseph had, had come about through a series of unfortunate events, really, to become second in charge of the nation. And there, the family of Jacob prospered, and they grew in number. However, years down the track, there was another pharaoh, a pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph, who didn't know about the, the history and care particularly about Joseph's people, um, the, the people of Israel. And rather, he saw in these numerous Israelites, he saw a threat to his nation. So they were, they were prosperous, they were, they were growing in number, and if he didn't do something, they could, you know, they could take over the country. And so he forced them into slave labor and worked them mercilessly hard. So God then raised up Moses to lead his people out of their slavery in Egypt and to back into the land that God had promised to them years ago. But Pharaoh didn't want to let his free slave labor go. And so God had to subject him and his people to plague after plague. Still, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go until a final plague that would be the worst of them all. A plague that would kill the firstborn males in all of the country. But God provided a way so that his own people would escape that judgment. God gives this instruction to Moses. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And God goes on to say that on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, though, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Here again, a lamb is sacrificed at God's instruction. And by its death, the Israelites are able to live. The blood of this lamb means that God's judgment passes over them. Hence why it came to be known as the Passover lamb. 
And not only does then God's judgment pass over them, the Israelites were then able to be set free from their slavery in Egypt, being able to leave that country and the oppression that they were under and to instead live in their freedom under God. And the Passover meal became an ongoing remembrance. And it was the lamb for the Passover meal that the boys in the song that Bob sang had the responsibility to watch. So there's a third theme that I believe feeds into John's calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the Day of Atonement. We've seen Isaac substituted for a lamb. We've seen the people of Israel passed over by the blood of a lamb. And then on the Day of Atonement, this was a day that was celebrated annually and the priests and the people would offer up a range of sacrifices, bulls, goats, sheep, to make atonement between God and, and the people. And we can most easily understand this idea of atonement by breaking the words down into its parts, to at one It's the action required to make, uh, to make as one a holy God and his sinful people. Where sin has caused a break in that relationship, they can be made at one again through the making of atonement, at one moment. And so on this day, the Day of Atonement, two goats are chosen. And I realise goats and lambs are not the same thing, but just stay with me and you'll see why I still think this feeds into the imagery of the Lamb of God. One of these goats is set aside for the Lord and is sacrificed by the priest as a sin offering. Its blood is sprinkled before God and in this way, Aaron, as the high priest, will make atonement for whatever the Israelite sins have been. This lamb pays the price, if you like, of the sins of the people. This goat, rather, I should say. The other goat is kept alive. And we read in Leviticus 16 that, that Aaron is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and to put them onto the goat's head. And he shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins of the people to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. The psalmist would later write, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins, from us. And that's what's going on with this second goat, the scapegoat, where the first bore the price of sin. This goat symbolically removes sin from the presence of God and his people. The sin is literally taken away, out of sight. And through these actions, God and the people are made at one again. So let's come back to Jesus with these three kind of stories in mind. John declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Do you begin to see some of what that, what that means? See, firstly, just as God provided a lamb for Abraham as a substitute for Isaac, so Jesus is given by God as a substitute for us. See, we're told that the wages of sin 
is death. And as Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. See, just as Isaac was this beloved child of Abraham, God says of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. I delight in him. And yet, in his love for us, God provided Jesus as that lamb of God, as the substitute for us to die in our place. Where our sin warrants that we be the ones on the cross, instead it is Jesus, our substitute in our place. And secondly, in Jesus, God has provided for us a Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb at that time meant that God's wrath and judgment would pass over his people. And again, in effect, the lamb bore the judgment, giving its life in place of the firstborn within the household. Well, Jesus on the cross took upon himself the wrath of God and his judgment upon sin. In the events leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus spent the night in a garden desperately praying to God, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup please be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. We know from other scriptures where this imagery of a cup is used that it it relates to God's wrath. His wrath is stored up in this cup that is then to be poured out in judgment. This is the cup that Jesus asked, if it is at all possible, please may it be taken from me. Please may it pass me by, that he would not have to drink it. And yet, in his submission to God, he drains the cup, taking the judgment and wrath of God for our sin upon himself. Again, our sin warrants that we be the ones on the cross who take the punishment and the judgment for our sin. Instead, it is Jesus, our Passover lamb, there in our place. Thirdly, in dying in our place and taking the judgment of our sin, in Jesus, God has provided for us a scapegoat. The Apostle Paul, writing about what Jesus achieved for us on the cross, he said this, He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He has taken away our sin, not by sending it on a goat out into the wilderness, but he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. There it is cancelled. There it's remembered no more, no longer held against us. Our slate is clean. And it came at the cost of Jesus dying on the cross, bearing our sins upon himself, crying out to the holy God who could not tolerate sin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore our sin, he experienced the separation from God uh, to be removed from his presence that, that we should. And as he did so, Again, it's our sin that warrants that we be the ones who are sent away from God's presence. Instead, it is Jesus, our scapegoat, in our place. And so the prophet Isaiah says of Jesus that surely he took up our pain and he bore our 
suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, it was on him. And by his wounds then, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's this that we remember on Good Friday, as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus. And this is what he has done for us. He offered himself up for our atonement that we could be at one again with God. We could not, we could not pay the price. We could not bear the punishment. We could not remove the sin. So he did it for us. That's why it's a good Friday. As tragic as the events of it are, it's good because through it, we are able to come to God forgiven and restored to him. And so one of the ways that we remember the events of Good Friday, one of the ways that we remember what it is for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and one of the ways then that we kind of appropriate it for ourselves afresh is through sharing in communion. You might know it as, as the Lord's Supper or as the Eucharist. By whatever name we call it, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and specifically who takes away our sin. He died our death that we might receive his life. And so as you came in this morning, you should have each picked up or, or received a, a cup that includes a, a wafer and some juice. For those of you who look to Jesus who put your faith in him to deal with your sin and to make you at one with God. Even if it's your very first time today, now, I want to invite you in a moment to, to share in communion with me after I pray. And I want to say to you too, that if you're here um, and you haven't trusted in the, in the Lamb of God, if you're not looking to Jesus as the way and means by which you are saved from your sin and restored to God, I want to encourage you to keep this cup and let it prompt you over this Easter and beyond to think about what it means that it was Jesus' blood and Jesus' body that was on that cross in your place. Let's pray together and then we'll share in communion. God, we thank you today for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, what we were unable in ourselves to do and achieve, you did for us. In your love, you sent Jesus to die as our substitute, as our Passover lamb, as our scapegoat. And by his wounds, 
we are healed. And so we thank you. We want to remember that today. We want to, to God, express our, our faith and our trust in Jesus again as we share in communion. As we take bread, uh, the wafer, remembering his body broken for us. As we take the juice, remembering his blood poured out for us. May we afresh behold the lamb today. May we watch him with our eyes and our hearts fixed on him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.